Education Trends is brought to you by our friends at BMO Education. BMO works with higher education institutions to develop and implement income-based finance programs on their campuses. Want help designing an ISA program? BMO has you covered. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more about how BMO partners with and designs ISAs for world-class higher education institutions. In today's world, everything is personalized, individualized, and changing at the drop of a hat. So why has the higher education model stayed essentially the same since its inception? Scott Pulsifer had that question, and as president of Western Governors University, he's in the position to answer it. WGU is all about competency-based education, where it's not how long you spend learning something, it's the ability to use what you learn in a practical way. Scott is not your usual case study in terms of university presidents. After earning a bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University and an MBA from Harvard University, Scott worked for more than 20 years in the tech field, including as general manager of Amazon Web Store. He brought all of that knowledge with him to WGU, and in today's episode, he talks about he hopes to disrupt the education space in a way that helps students achieve their natural learning potential in a personalized way. Here's our interview. All right. So, Scott, thank you again for joining us here on Ed Trends. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your role with Western Governors University. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, my role is the president of Western Governors University. I've been in my current role for nearly two and a half years. Prior to being in higher education, I had uh, nearly 20 years in the kind of technology sector, both with uh, software startups as well as with Amazon another mid-sized software company. So higher education is still somewhat new to me, but I figure after uh, two plus years in it, I don't get any more excuses for not knowing what I'm doing. So tell me a little bit about how you you got from tech to education. It's not like the usual transition, it doesn't seem like. Yeah, it isn't. It That is definitely not usual. I will say that there's probably two things that were going on in my own experience that I was increasingly enjoying the opportunity to work with students in an advisory role that I had with my undergraduate alma mater, which was Brigham Young University, which is just to the south of where we are here at WGU in Salt Lake City. But I really enjoyed engaging with them and seeing the impact that the sharing of my experiences in industry, particularly with areas of product management, marketing, et cetera, could help the MBA students that were going through the programs there and helping them learn how to kind of apply the learning to the practical realities of work. But while I was pursuing my next startup, if you will, WGU was endeavoring to find their successor to really the founding president, Bob Mendenhall. And uh, for those of you who don't know, WGU is quite unique in the sense that uh, not only has it redesigned the model of learning and competency-based education, but it heavily leverages technology and the internet to deliver that education. So I think to some degree, the board, when seeking a successor, was looking for someone that had both a true passion for the purpose of education and changing lives, but also had the background and experience and passion for leveraging technology to help that transformation. And so for them, uh, my background from technology and having applied that to innovation in a variety of different sectors, but also combining that with a real personal intention to change the lives of others, that made it a really good fit for me and also for the board. I can tell you and everyone listening that this has by far been the most fulfilling and rewarding experience for me in a professional context that I could have ever imagined. 
tell us a little bit about what exactly is competency-based education and why is that model used at WGU and, and why does it work so well? Yeah, competency-based education, WGU wasn't necessarily the inventor of it. it. It had existed before, but surely WGU is the largest scaled provider of it. Competency-based education simply starts with the principle that the learning and the outcome or the demonstrated proficiency is what matters, not the time spent in doing it. And so it starts with that simple principle that you measure the learning and that you have to assess students' competency in those learning outcomes that are part of the curriculum. And so it focuses on looking and developing the curriculum as well as the assessments to ensure that that uh, proficiency can be assessed. That is very different than a credit hour or a time-based model where time and seat is a key determinant as to whether an individual has done the work, if you will, to acquire the learning. And so competency-based education really demands a very different approach to it. It hinges on the ability to really identify first and foremost the clear learning objectives or the learning outcomes at a course and a program level that directly map to the competencies that are expected of the individual who's done the learning. Those competencies are mapped, in our case particularly, to the workforce needs. So in the particular jobs or fields of work that we see as in high demand in the workforce, you know, we have to understand and identify those competencies well and then translate those into learning objectives. Those learning outcomes then require a well-designed assessment, a way by which you can utilize objective assessment, a written and performance-based assessment, even capstone projects, and ultimately also observe behaviors in a classroom or in a clinical environment for certain programs, that there is a true and reliable way by which to validate the proficiency of the individual in the course. So that competency-based model is define the competencies and then have highly valid, highly credible assessments to ensure that the individual can demonstrate that competency. Let's go back a little bit to your education background. So I know you went to BYU and you went to Harvard, and then like you said, you went on into the tech field. So tell me about how you saw education as you were growing up and how your view of education has changed in the years since then. There's a couple things. One is I uh, shared even with the board that I realized that I myself had a personal experience with what arguably could be a competency-based model, which is I, through my own choice, realized that I was spending the time and focus on those areas or subject matters that I was less progressed in, if you will, and that uh, I didn't spend a lot of time in those courses and work that I already was quite proficient in, to the point of literally not going to classes and lectures and just focusing on the studying to take the exams and prove that, in fact, I had mastered the subject. Whereas in other cases, I was intensely focused in the lecture sessions and going to all the labs on those subject matters where, in fact, I was very lacking proficiency. And that to me was something that only upon encountering WGU, when I looked back on my own education, I realized that individuals do this naturally, that they tend to focus their efforts on those areas where they really need to develop and they accelerate through those areas that they don't. Meanwhile, that model that I was used to and most you know, first-time, full-time students are used to is it was still a time-based model. Should I have been allowed to accelerate, I imagine that, uh, that I might have done so and approached it in a more individualized way. Having said that, what I also think about is the, the courses and the things that I value most now, having had a 20-plus year professional experience, that you start to recognize those subject matters that you didn't necessarily value when you were doing it or studying it, 
have become increasingly important over time. And, and one of those areas for me is many of the liberal arts domains or those core proficiencies around communication, both written and verbal, and the ability for critical reasoning. And the, those became the most important to me rather than any one specific subject matter, be it finance or accounting or economics. There are principles from those that are applied at time, but in fact, I think the most valuable aspects for me have been really those that enable continuous learning for myself personally. I have definitely been exposed to a variety of different models, meaning both the traditional kind of lecture style model as well as the Socratic method model that's utilized at Harvard Business School. My personal feeling is, is that many of them work. In fact, almost all of them work, but they work differently based upon the individual. And I think that that is one of the most important takeaways is that for learning to truly be accessible to an increasing number of adults who need it, it has to be more and more adaptable and it needs to recognize that individuals approach learning in different ways, but everyone has the capacity for learning and we shouldn't have a one standard model by which it occurs. We should be able to develop and leverage you know, technology and and other aspects that are in our toolkit today to start adapting that to the individual rather than having a one-size-fits-all model. How did you come to those conclusions? Did you, did you learn that through just experience? Is it something you brought with you from the tech field? Tell me a little bit about how you, you drew out those conclusions. I think it's definitely fair to say that given my role today and my obsession about education and how it changes the lives of individuals, I tend to be more reflective about my own experiences and having gone through educational experiences as well as then how that translated into professional contexts or work-based contexts. More and more, I would say that uh, we tend to emphasize the individual nature of learning. It's not to say that you can't find a collection of individuals that in fact may share a lot of the similar traits in their approach to learning. It's simply to say that our endeavor has to be one of which the whole of WGU, if you will, feels like is exclusively designed for the individual student. And I think it was just simply this notion that I myself, having thought about the problems and the challenges and the work effort that I was approaching, that I was utilizing my mental models and my mental frameworks, et cetera, to approach that. We see that even in our own endeavors. I think uh, one example I can point to at WGU is that we have a pretty good model by which we can identify the learner profile of every individual student that's coming into WGU. And what that looks at are specific dimensions across the cognitive domain. And then it also looks at variables across the non-cognitive domain. And these relate more to purpose, self-efficacy, communication style, perseverance and grit, aspects that are huge contributors to an individual's progress and learning. And I think what we've discovered through this, that there, that there is no one single profile of a learner. There, in fact, are closer to like 12 or 16 different profiles. And those start to shape their expectations of what it's supposed to be like, etc. And it's not that one is better than the other. It's just a different style. So now, having done some of that work and been privy to it here at WGU, it's kind of reinforced this notion that personalizing the learning journey will be kind of the next evolution or really the next wave of innovation that really advances access to high quality for an ever-increasing number of adults. What do some of those learning profiles look like and how do you personalize an education to them? What steps go into that process? 
the learner profiles will look at things like, you know, what is the analytical capability and, and math proficiency is a good determinant as to how they, you know, are problem solvers or critical thinkers as such that if you index higher on that, you have an, a better ability, if you will, to tackle unknown scenarios or unknown problems. If you don't have that, it doesn't mean that you can't tackle them. It may mean simply that we have to first kind of work with ways and methods to help you learn how to learn. You know, that specifically addresses kind of problem solving challenges and how you can approach problem solving, create frameworks for analysis, et cetera. Other dimensions are more about goal setting, you know, and even periodic goal setting, which is, you know, how do individuals deal with short term versus long term goal setting? And certain individuals are going to be perfectly fine in our six month based term. But for other individuals, six months is way too far into the future, and they need shorter cycles of goal setting, which may be monthly or, or even two-month cycle. What this means to us ultimately, and those are just two examples, but what this really means is when we think about personalizing learning, we think about everything from a course plan in their degree. So the schedule that they'll actually flow through and the sequence of courses, et cetera, will be adapted to the individual's you know, learning approach. We'll also think about the technology and tools that they're going to utilize, like notifications and nudges and, and reminders that are utilized to help them get the appropriate nudges at the right sequence and proactively to kind of help them progress along. It will shape how we think about faculty assignments and faculty mentors that get paired up with each individual student that comes to WGU because certain mentor capabilities are going to be better suited to certain learners versus this mentor model or mentor profile will work better with this learner profile. We'll also look at things like, you know, sequencing of goals and the timing of terms and how you schedule the terms and keep the pacing measures that are appropriate. Some can work fine on a six-month pace. Others need to work on a monthly or bi-monthly pace. And so those are variables or factors that we can change to start to personalize the journey for students that we think will now, again, come back to the core point, which is, how do we expand the number of learners and the, the adults that we can serve because we can better personalize the entire end-to-end learning journey to increase the probability that each student is successful? In terms of trends, obviously, individualized education is a huge one. What other trends are you seeing in education? And from your background in tech, how do you see tech fitting into growing the education field and making things easier or better for students who are who are more and more becoming lifelong learners instead of just like a four-year learner, if you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The, the, in fact, well, those are one of the key points of probably is one of the trends happening out there, the whole notion of a four-year degree. We should probably throw that four-year degree out. But if I were to kind of reference, I think, a couple macro trends that listeners and I think that we're paying attention to is one of them is the emergence, Not I shouldn't say the emergence, but the growing scale and relevance of what is referred to as the adult learner. By that, I think what is generally assumed is over the age of 24. And this population of learners is, uh, one, it's vital to the total need that exists within the U.S. economy and the workforce demand that exists there today. And these are an increasing percentage of the total individuals that are in the higher ed system and are going to be increasingly so. I think it's already at 40% of the total, uh, 40% of the roughly 20 million adults in higher education are already over the age of 24, but it's also the fastest growing age demographic of the learners. And the reality is, is that 
my own perspective is that this population will be over 50% of the adults in the system within probably 10 years, maybe 15 years at most, because these individuals are now finding pathways and approaches that they can access high quality education, but they still need, they have different needs and they relate a lot to flexibility and it's not just affordability or time. They don't have the time to travel to a campus or be a resident full-time student. They often have jobs and families that are full-time responsibilities in addition to going to school. You know, they can't kind of unplug from that life to then be 100% dedicated to it. You know, many of those that are in the kind of middle-income brackets or underserved populations as well, you know, the affordability of the traditional kind of model of a four-year undergraduate institution is not one that's highly accessible for these individuals. And so that is a macro trend that I think the system as a whole and, and the institutions within it are paying attention to. How do they serve that widening scope of learners that are not going to be that typical high school graduate? There's probably some other dimensions there that are, are a function of that. The online learning and distance education is definitely expanding rapidly. I think its most recent data says that 6 million of the 20 million students are taking all or some of their programs online. If you look at the largest and fastest growing enrollment institutions, they tend to have very large online programs. And, and this is improving accessibility. Those are some interesting macro trends I think we're paying attention to. There is one other compelling one that I think I would share, which is and back to your reference of the four-year credential or the four-year degree, there is arguably the emerging or increasing unbundling of the bachelor's degree. And I think that you can hear or have probably heard many different terms out there, things like stackable credentials, scaffolding, whatever it may be. The reality is, is that learning and individuals learning traverse is now going to be the aggregation of many sub-credentials or sub-degree credentials or micro-credentials that appropriately stack into the rank of bachelors, but how individuals achieve those different credentials will now significantly vary. That you'll maybe start with my one-year credential in my particular field of study that I'm interested in, then you'll do an apprenticeship and that will offer you some credit. Then you may also go back for a ongoing learning and the certificate that's associated with that. But it may be 10 years in learning before an individual achieves the rank of bachelor's, if you will. And some of that learning is not going to be provided by higher ed institutions themselves. It may also happen by employers and apprenticeship models. It may happen through competency-based approaches and demonstrated proficiency. That is a real trend that I think is going to stick and it's going to change individuals' expectations for what they're you know, educational journey is going to look like. As somebody who's relatively new to the education field, what's something that surprised you when you joined and what's one or two of the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your role as president at WGU? Well, maybe I'll share two things. One is more of a sector-wide thing that I was, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but maybe I was, which is how little higher education has changed in the kind of two centuries since the emergence of the modern baccalaureate, early 1800s, quite frankly, is when the kind of beyond teaching and theology, you know, bachelor's degrees started being provided across, you know, an increasing range of fields. 
But the model of higher education as exists today in the U.S. has been around for centuries, and that model has changed very little. The access to it is definitely expanded, particularly with the GI Bill and the increasing relevance or the need for bachelor's credentials in the workforce, etc. But I was uh, somewhat surprised at how little has changed. And there could be a lot of reasons for that. But maybe now we're in a phase where the forces at play are significant enough around affordability, accessibility, the adult learner that we talked about, the gap that exists between workforce needs and, and the graduate's readiness to meet those needs. We're now kind of in a very you know, tumultuous period, I think, of innovation that's happening where many of the other non-traditional players are starting to shape what the future is going to look like. Examples would be coding boot camps, would be employers investing directly in training and educating their own employees into new fields of work. And that is, I think, creating a you know a real period of innovation. I will say the one thing that I was uh, wonderfully surprised by at WGU was the in- intense even obsession over student success. And it's something that for me resonated so much as particularly because of a background at Amazon where like WGU or I don't know which, they both kind of were found in the same place. I don't know which did at first, but WGU like Amazon or Amazon like WGU, I don't think we have any confusion about who our customer is. We exist to serve our students and the intense focus here has led to an incredible focus on the details that matter and everything from the course design and the curriculum and the content to the assessment design, to the student support, to the technology development, to the faculty model. Like I was so wonderfully surprised by that intense focus on the student as the primary individual that we serve and everything that we do is to increase the probability of their success. And we will forever be pursuing new innovations and new approaches to to increase that success. And so that was, to me, a validation that I had made the right choice to join WGU because I felt like I could add to it, but I was also going to be incredibly compelled by it. Definitely. And what are some of those innovations that you're working on that you're most excited about coming up this new school year and, and in general? Some of the things that we're particularly investing in are going to be very compelling. One is we've kind of referenced that notion of micro-credentials. We definitely see the, we, I think, with a competency-based design are going to see rapid advancement of the modularization of the credential, if you will, that because we started with learning outcomes associated with competencies that we have kind of already all the Lego building blocks to allow us to modularize learning in a way that is going to accelerate the advancement of micro-credentials. We're quite excited about that and the technology that's going to underpin that, including the notion of a, you know the competency-based transcript and the universality or portability of that transcript that allows us to capture learning that may occur not just at WGU, but many other partner places. I'm quite excited about that area. I would say that we're kind of emerging in our next phase of innovation around the faculty-student engagements powered by technology as well. The investments that we're making to really provide our faculty with a more holistic, if you will, 360-degree view of the student that not only helps them be informed by their starting profile, but their engagement, as well as their, you know, progressing spots versus trouble spots and the toolkits and playbooks, et cetera, that we're enabling our faculty to be much more responsive and personalized to the individual student. We're excited about that as well. 
The other key thing I would say is that we're investing heavily to rapidly advance our curriculum development and the pace of change in that because we see that, if anything, they're shortening shelf life of competencies and that we need to increase this speed and iteration of which we design the curriculum. This directly ties to the macro trend you hear about around the future of work and uh, how things like technology are changing the shape of all of that. And so how do you need to better skill the individuals that are going into those fields of work? Well, that puts demands upon us to accelerate our speed of innovation and iteration on our curriculum design. So those are at least three areas that uh, we're quite excited about. All right. How do you feel about doing a quick lightning round? Okay. All right. So what are some of your or one of your favorite books that you've read in this past year? Probably Team of Rivals was probably my favorite book from this last year. Just Lincoln as a leader was just incredible. What about podcasts? Are you a podcast guy? What are you listening to? I am a podcast guy. My favorite one right now is definitely Revisionist History from Malcolm Gladwell. That's a great one. Oh, my God. He's so good. He's so good. What about music and TV? What are you listening to? What do you like to watch? TV, I haven't had for seven plus years now. You know, my kids use Netflix, but there's no shows I could reference. I'm still an old school person. Seinfeld's probably still my number one favorite TV show. Solid choice. Yeah. Music wise, I try to keep up with my kids. I've turned most of them into the alternative, you know, rock, alternative pop music back from my 80s days. That was the kind of uh, genre. I would say that in that, Bourne's is probably one of our current favorite bands. Very good. Very cool. All right. What's your favorite snack or go-to guilty pleasure? Probably peanut butter (laughs) M&Ms. Looking at the jar of them on my desk here. That's probably my go-to snack. (laughs) Finally, if you could leave the audience with one thing, favorite success story or best piece of advice going forward, what would it be? I would say embrace your failures. I that for me is the most seminal experiences I've had in, in my adult life, I would say, is those times when I've clearly failed. Not that they were massive mistakes that were going to get me fired or anything else like that, but where you really felt like all of your efforts were not resulting in the success that you intended to achieve. And that, in fact, if you aren't vulnerable and exposed to those things that you're failing in, then you won't open yourself up to the learning that will bring you to your next level of performance. And so... I would say embrace your failures. They will be the most important source of learning. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Good luck with everything. Thank you.